The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I like lists. I like to make lists. I like to see lists. I like to examine lists. Lists usually have a unifying principle to them that guides them. Any purposeful or meaningful list will contain items that have some kind of a common theme. So you all know this. Let's play a game. I'm going to list a few items, and then you will tell me what kind of a list I am making. What is the unifying principle? What is this list a list of? For example, apples, bananas, grapes, there you go, fruit. Could be groceries, could be fruit. Try this one a little bit harder. Barnabas, Peter, Paul, James, Andrew, John. Apostles, I heard somebody got it. Yeah, apostles. So not all of those were the 12 disciples, but they were all apostles. In our text today, we're going to see a list of 19 attributes. These 19 attributes are found in false converts and false teachers. They're evidence of an unbelieving heart that's not really trusting in the gospel. So please follow along as I read now from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and going through verse 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions." always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, an incredible text filled with all kinds of sin. Lord, I pray that as we come to it today, we would not just focus on these sins and not even just focus on how to avoid them, but that we might see you more clearly and that we might love you more fervently and that we might chase after you with all of our heart, soul, minds and strength, loving you the way the Bible teaches that we should. And God, I pray that today, if there is anyone here who is caught in any of these sins, you would bring freedom by the way of the gospel, that you would give joy and conviction by way of your word, and that you would, by your spirit, draw them to a place of repentance. And God, I pray for those in this room who are currently listening to false teaching, where they are finding it in, in places. God, I pray that you would please guard them, protect them. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage if there is anyone who is currently finding a source of teaching that is 
in contradiction to your word, that you would bring them out of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we don't have a normal outline today. If you've been around for the last few months, it's usually like one, two, or three points, very simple outlines. Today is a little bit different. Instead, I have 17 observations from this text. And when I told Jacob that last night, he laughed at me and said, you're joking, right? I'm not joking, but we're going to move through them pretty rapidly. So if you will follow along, I think these 17 observations will be helpful in understanding false converts and false teachers. We begin with with observation number one. The gospel is of first importance. Every single passage in the Bible is in some way pointing to the good news of salvation. The way that this particular set of verses deals with the gospel is simply to command Timothy to defend it. So it would theoretically be possible for me to preach through this text and to never actually explain what the gospel is because Paul does not do that within these nine verses. But our calling to defend the gospel is completely worthless and irrelevant unless we first know with certainty what is this good news that we are supposed to be defending. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is of first importance. What is that gospel that we are to avoid being distorted? It is what we heard earlier from Mike Negley. He did a great job in preparing our hearts for the Lord's table. But it's the news that Christ came to die for sinners. That Christ, God himself, became man, fully God and fully man, living a life in place of us, living a life that we could not live, earning what he said earlier, eternal life. For the wage of sin is death. So why is it that a perfect man would die? Because of the beautiful word substitution. He took all of my sin and put it on his shoulders and paid for it. And then he gave me all of his righteousness so that I might be right with God. And the good news is if you have believed in Jesus Christ, that describes you. And that is the good news. That is the message. That is the central focus of everything that we teach and preach as believers. And that is the central way that we grow. There is no way you could be conformed into the image of Christ just by trying harder. Every single command in the New Testament is grounded in the reality that we are like Christ. We desire to be like him. We pursue him because of this gospel message, because of what he has done. So this is the message that the people in this passage that we're going to read about are messing up. They're distorting. They are mocking it by their actions. Here's observation number two. Paul is speaking about professing believers in this passage. Pagans have always acted like pagans. Paul is telling us to watch out for false Christians who are not actually saved, but they say they are saved. How do we know that they are not saved? We know by their lifestyle. He is not merely speaking about the decay of culture. Cultures all around the world wax and wane in terms of their outward acceptance of evil, but they are never Christ-like without the gospel. The Pharisees would outwardly be very respectable in our world today. They would be very... They would be looked at as very good people, but their hearts were far from God. Unsaved people are going to find all manner of ways to act like unsaved people. Paul is not talking here about unsaved people who know they are not saved. In the context of this passage, it is clear that he is speaking to a group of people who are in a congregation professing the name of Jesus Christ. I want us to stop here for a moment and realize that 
as I'm preaching through this text, it would be very easy to read this list or to go through these nine verses and to have in our mind kind of these goggles that we're looking out at the other people in this room or looking out at other churches or looking out for other teachers elsewhere. And that's not entirely wrong. In fact, this passage encourages that. However, the first place we are called to be looking is what you said earlier, circumspectly in at ourselves. So as I go through these things today, I do not want you to have an air of condemnation towards others, but one first of humility before God and genuine self-searching. Does this describe me? Do I have any sin, O Lord? Show me my faults. Search me and know me. That is a terrifying thing to ask God. Third observation. Christians are called to understand false converts and false teachers. There are only two commands that we find in these nine verses. For all of the words that Paul uses, it's incredible that he only has nine commands for Christians here. The first command is to understand or to realize or recognize or think through the fact that there will be people within the church who who carry the name of Christ on them, yet they are not actually part of the flock. He tells Timothy, understand this. And just like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn how we are to see them. You know them by their fruit. And certainly Timothy knows this. Certainly he understands that false converts and false teachers are present in the church. But Paul is calling him, and by extension, he is also calling us to be vigilant, always keeping watch. This is primarily the job of pastors. This is called a pastoral epistle. It is written from one pastor to another about shepherding the flock. But please understand, this does not get you off the hook. This does not take away any of your responsibility. You too are called to observe and to guard and to care for every soul of the other members of this body. And if someone begins to display characteristics that are in line with this list of 19 traits listed below, it is your duty and your calling as a Christian to lovingly put your arm around them and lovingly confront them so that they might repent. And if they do not repent, the process of church discipline will ensue which is a loving way to call them back to right living. And if they still refuse to repent, then it is revealed that they truly did not know Christ. They actually just love their sin. Observation number four. These things are going to happen, as it says here in the text, in the last days. The question is, what does Paul mean here when he says the last days? This is really important for us to know because the text is time sensitive. The things that are in this passage are going to take place in the period of time called the last days. So what are they? Let's do a quick research, uh, Bible search here about these terms. The first time that this term is ever used in the New Testament is actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. Allow me to set the stage for you. It's Pentecost. It's a celebration feast. There's a ton of people the disciples are still scared and they are in the upper room. They're waiting. They're, they're wondering what is going to happen here. They're, they're, they're waiting for what Christ has said will come and they're prayerful, wondering how is it that we're going to fulfill the ministry that Christ has told us to do. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin speaking in all sorts of other languages and they begin pouring out of this upper room into the marketplace, proclaiming the goodness of God and the gospel. And as they are doing that, everyone is looking at them thinking, these people are wasted. 
these people are crazy drunks. And Peter steps forward and he boldly preaches one of the most effective sermons in all of history. And he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, For these people are not drunk, as you have supposed, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered. This is what was uttered. This is currently what was, past tense, uttered. So, in other words, this is happening now through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, this is what Joel had said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And he quotes more of Joel 2 there. What is he getting at? This outpouring of the Holy Spirit is evidence that this is the last days. We, are, we have now been entered into the last days. Do you see his argument? He is telling them that Joel's prophecy has now been fulfilled. Peter is arguing that the last days have been inaugurated. How? If you continue reading the sermon, inaugurated by the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And this idea that the last days have already begun is not isolated here to Peter's sermon. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, the prophets. But in these last days, he has, past tense, spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who is he talking about? Of course, it's Jesus. When were these last days inaugurated? at the coming of Christ, the first time. Notice again that this was past tense. James chapter 5, verse 3, James tells the wealthy Christians that they have, quote, laid up treasures, laid up past tense for themselves in the last days. In fact, there are only five instances that this Greek phrase, the last days, are ever used in the New Testament, and every last one of them are speaking about the present day of the author. Now, how do we know that about this instance in 2 Timothy? How do we know that I'm not just drawing from other authors and superimposing it here over Paul? How do we know that for certain? Well, we know because Paul, if you jump down to verse 5, commands Timothy to avoid such men. Why would he tell Timothy to avoid such men if they're not going to show up until the last days, which are in the future? Paul intends for Timothy to understand these things as a present reality. Clearly, he believed that this activity was already taking place within the church, and he is not teaching that it was only a future event. So, what is a biblical understanding of the last days? I like the way that Bruce Hurt summarizes it, so I'm going to quote him. He says, Comparing Scripture with Scripture, one can only deduce that the last days is inaugurated by Messiah's first coming, continues through Pentecost, and become and comes to its culmination with the second coming of Christ, when the Son of, right, of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. End quote and well said. Fantastic. What are the last days? It's the, the age right now that we are living in. It is the time of the church in its existence on this earth. This is significant because this ties us together with Paul and with Timothy in their battle for the truth. Christians of all ages are involved in contending for the purity of the gospel. Point number five. False converts and false teachers harm the church. 
this list is telling us that these people are going to make things very, very difficult for true believers. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for or because of all of the character traits that are listed below. These things are going to make it difficult to be a Christian in this church. These things are going to make it challenging to honor Christ in the body. It is important for us to understand that they are coming into the church and how to identify them as they come into the church, Paul says, for they will make life difficult for the congregation. So if you've been around churches very long for any number of years, you'll know this to be true. You will have seen this happen. It only takes one or two really sinful members, warped or twisted people who can come in and cause everyone in the body to experience turmoil. It doesn't take that many before everyone feels the stress and pressure of the things that are listed here in these verses. So by saying this, Paul is telling us what the stakes are. Timothy, be understanding, be watchful and guard because this can really hurt your church. So by saying this, Paul is telling us these stakes are high and allowing sin to flourish in the camp will result in the devastation of the body. So there's a reason that you never hear a doctor say, you know, it's just a little bit of pancreatic cancer. Let's just leave it. Maybe it'll be fine. We'll check back on it in a year or two. No, if you have pancreatic cancer, it is an aggressive treatment that begins taking place immediately. It is deadly and must be treated immediately. Paul is telling Timothy that in order for him to protect and preserve the safety of the flock at Ephesus, this must be guarded carefully. That's what he's been getting at all of chapter 2 and now entering into chapter 3. Observation number 6. This list is not intended to be all-encompassing. We've actually reached the list now, these 19 notorious qualities, but before we jump headfirst, I want to first make a clarification that not every false convert and not every false teacher will display every one of these traits. And I think that's important. In fact, it's unlikely that somebody would check every single one of these boxes. You don't need to check all of them. You just need to check one. And on the other hand, this list is not intended to be a complete roster of every kind of sin issue that might cause us to be concerned about someone else. He's just giving a broad spectrum. Furthermore, it is possible that a genuine Christian could sin for a time in any number of these ways. However, a true believer will repent of that sin. So if you find yourself being described by one of these items, what do you do? If you find yourself present on this list of 19 things, what should you do? You should repent and run to the cross. This is not a time for condemnation, but a time of calling to repentance. So I understand that Christ, he will cleanse those who come to him seeking forgiveness. For he is faithful and just to forgive all of all of our unrighteousness. So now we actually arrive at the list with observation number seven which is this, you will know them by their affections. Now, from this point forward, there's going to be a little bit of a logical progression through this list in some way. First, I'm going to be talking broadly about all people who are false converts, false Christians. And then I'm going to zoom in specifically towards the end on false teachers alone. So we begin with the fact that you will know false converts by their affections. 
one of the things that stands out about the people on this list is that they love all of the wrong things. Look again at a few of these things. In verse 2, they are lovers of self. Life is all about them. They will seek to serve themselves in any way possible. Then in verse 3, it says they are heartless, which means they don't love others appropriately with compassion or with grace. And then we see in verse 3, they are not lovers of good. And then in verse 4, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. One of the central evidences that somebody is not a true follower of Christ is that they will have worldly affections. They love the things of this world. These things are not easy to ascertain. How do you know if somebody has a love for the things of this world? How do you know if somebody meets these qualifications? You know by careful, long-term observation and examination. Exhibit A, Judas. This man seemed to love Jesus. This man left his home. He left his livelihood. He traveled around with Jesus and he went out on mission trips with one other disciple. Sometimes I've thought to myself, I feel bad for that other disciple, but he was teaching the same message as the other disciple. He was out there sharing the same truths as Jesus was teaching. And he was going out there. And it seems like, because of the way it speaks about the group, it seems like he probably had the power to cast out demons and do miraculous signs. Judas fit in with the disciples in all of those ways. He appeared to be a disciple. So much so that when Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me, he is the only one that seems to be above scrutiny in the room, which is bizarre because it was him. Yet on the inside, Judas has always been a lover of self. He was in it for the money. As Kent Hughes called him, I think brilliantly, a man who knew the cost of everything but the value of nothing. Over the course of time, his actions revealed the truth that was on the inside. You can't hide it forever. Eventually, a bad tree will produce bad fruit. So what must we do? We cultivate our love for Christ. That is why Paul is writing to Timothy... Fan that flame, Timothy. Remember, we go back to chapter one. I'm writing to you so that your zeal may increase. Seems like he's lost that passion for Christ. But you are called, and so am I, to fan that flame and to cultivate our love for Christ. And also as a body, we are called to do that for our brothers and sisters. Encourage one another. Encourage one another in practical ways by serving one another. Do it in word. Say loving things. Do you love them? Tell them you love them. Show them that you love them and do it indeed. Do things that will be beneficial for them. Help others develop a deep love of Christ. And those who have been saved are going to flourish as you proclaim the gospel to them in your conversations. That is going to be life to them. But those who are not born of God will find that kind of discussion to be an aroma unto death. They just don't like it. Observation number eight. You are going to know false converts by the way that they treat others. Let's consider some of these, uh, some more of these items from the list. I'm going to move through them rapidly because I think you probably know what they mean, but I'm going to just describe them briefly. They are proud or self-focused. They are arrogant, which means they are presenting themselves as better than they are. They are abusive, meaning they are angry or rude or they belittle others or use hurtful words or actions towards others. They are ungrateful, which means they think they deserve whatever they're getting from other people. 
They are heartless, which means they don't have compassion. They are unappeasable, which basically means, this is the hardest word in the text, it probably means that they're unwilling to reconcile. If someone says, will you please forgive me? Their answer is absolutely not. And then we come to slanderous, which means they speak evil of others. They're without self-control, which means they do whatever they want. They're brutal, which means they're insensitive and vicious towards those that they view to be their enemies. They are treacherous, meaning they seek the harm of other people. They are reckless, meaning they are not careful with other people's emotions or their possessions or even with their souls. And they are swollen with conceit. Their head just can't get any bigger. Their view of themselves is that they are the greatest and everyone else is below them. People like this will eventually be recognized within a church. A bull can only tiptoe around a china shop for so long before they start destroying everything around them. There are many who say that they love Christ, but they treat his bride like an enemy. The one thing that connects all of the things I just listed is that they don't show love to other people. All of these things are about love. Do you love them? Then you will do none of these things. When someone displays these attributes on a consistent basis towards others who, who are in the church, they show that there's no genuine spiritual growth there. They show that there's no change. There's no evidence that they've actually believed the gospel because they are living a life that is just loving themselves and not loving God. Observation number nine. This is true not only of adults, but of people for all ages. Young people, I want to talk to you for a minute. Youth group age that are up here, everyone who who is currently under the authority of their parents, you'll notice that this list includes the phrase disobedient to parents. And it might seem strange to you that something that you view as small like this would be on a list of things that are so big, like being unholy or lovers of self. But that's exactly what disobedience to parents actually is. And if you claim to be a young person who is a Christian, if you say that you are a believer, I want you, not later when you're an adult, I want you right now to do some searching of your own heart. Do you genuinely have saving faith? If you do, that should lead you to repentance and obedience of those whom God has put over you and in, in, have made your, uh, them be in charge of you. Not only that, I'm not saying you're going to get it right every time, because you're not. You're going to fail. You should strive to get it right every time. But not only that, if you fail, you should be quick to repent and apologize to your parents and seek their forgiveness. And if you're a genuine believer, you're going to stop imagining that God ignores this period of your life. I was a youth pastor for seven years, and I was involved in youth ministry pretty regularly for at least three years before that. And I can tell you, young people, one of the biggest things that was a problem in the hearts of the students was that they often thought, God just doesn't care about this period of my junior high, high school life. He'll care about more of my life when I get to be an adult. There is no magical switch that you flip once you graduate. Seek Christ with all of your heart now and live in obedience to your parents. Pursue godliness, which includes following the instructions of those whom have been placed in authority over you. Observation number 10. We are told, the second command here, to avoid such people. The people that are listed here, we are called to avoid them. Please notice that this is not representing just false teachers. Of course, we're supposed to avoid false teachers. This list is actually speaking to everyone who lives like this. 
And it's not just people of the world. Remember, he's talking about people who profess the name of Christ. Christians are supposed to avoid self-professing Christians who don't live like Christians. In verse 6, he explains that this is the breeding ground of false teachers. They arise from the ranks of this kind of person because this kind of group produces false teachers, but also false teachers attract this kind of group. So what does this mean when it says to avoid such people? How are we called to avoid them? What if you work with a person like this? Should you quit your job and try to stay away from them? What is it actually saying? By the way, it's not saying that. What we are to understand here is that we should make it clear to somebody that we are not the same. If they are in this body, that must be dealt with so that it is made evident that this is not a quality representative of somebody who knows Christ. So if that process is within the body, then we avoid that kind of sin by bringing to repentance or making it clear that that person is not truly following Christ. But when it happens outside of this body is where it becomes challenging because there are literally millions of people in this country and i would say probably millions uh, at least a million people on this island who profess the name of jesus christ but don't actually know him they say they know jesus but their lifestyle is in direct rebellion to him so how do you work or live or act in a world filled with people like that how do you avoid them honoring this passage well there's a few ways to do that We avoid them in the sense that we do not agree with their self-assessment of their spiritual state. Lovingly, we say, I don't actually know if you know Jesus. It seems to me that you don't. And of course, that's in a conversation that you would have with a relational aspect. We also tell them that we are, we also avoid them in the sense that we do not spend our primary time with them. Secondly, included with that, our time that we do spend with them, we do so knowing this is evangelism, not fellowship. And that's a very important distinction to make. But this does not mean that we are ever to be unkind or unloving to anyone. This is not a license to just bash people or destroy them or become angry with them. Because then you would fall into the category of these 19 qualities on the list. Observation number 11. False teachers prey on the weakest people. So now we transfer from talking just about false converts to more specifically talking about a subset of that group, which are false teachers. You may have noticed that I skipped something earlier from the list. It says, these people will be lovers of money. It also says in verse 6, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. These false teachers are hunting. They are poaching those who are weak and there are Lots of examples that I could give you. I could borrow from all sorts of things that I've seen or heard in my life. But I'm going to do something that I almost never do. In fact, I think in the existence of our church has only happened one other time. I'm going to show you a video during the sermon just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Let's see if Rocky cut it there. It goes on and on and on. I hope that nobody has ever been fooled into one of these kinds of gimmicks. As we watch that video, it's easy to laugh It's easy to mock him. This guy, you know, he was doing this. This video is from the 80s. This guy's still doing this, and he's still making money. We're going to cut that out from the audio, by the way, so we don't get sued by him, because that would probably happen. But there are a lot of examples of people like that. Later on in this video, this exact video, the man will say to all of the people watching him on television, 
I can tell you that there is a woman out there whose husband doesn't want her to give $1,000 to this, to this ministry, which is probably all of them. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to plant that seed of faith. He's undermining the authority of this person's local church, undermining the authority of this person's husband, and is basically telling them, if you just believe, then you're going to have so much more come back to you. Now, there's a lot more that we could have seen, and just it's just discouraging, disgusting. Who listens to this? Who actually is fooled by this? You know who? Desperate people. Desperate people believe that kind of thing. And people who sometimes have genuine faith will hear that and be confused because they experience desperate situations and they just want what this guy is peddling. But this guy is evil. I have no qualms about saying that. This man is not seeking the good of others. This man is seeking for money. Desperate people listen to him and give him money. But not all false teachers are this blatant. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. A lot of false teachers are not that clear. Love of money can reveal itself sometimes in much more subtle ways. But wait, there's more. Observation number 12. False teachers are usually really smart. Verse 7 says that they're always learning, but never coming to an understanding of the truth. They build up their libraries. They expand their vocabularies. Yet their minds and their words are void of truth. They are filled with knowledge, but just knowledge that puffs up. They're usually persuasive and they have systems in place and formulas and lots of books that they can give you. But they are just producing information that tickles the ears of their listeners. But there is no true nourishment for a believer in that. There is no true growth that will be experienced by the disciples of those people. Observation 13. False teachers are enemies of the truth. In other words, they're not just ignorant. You may see that these men and women are never able to come to knowledge of the truth and you might begin to feel sad for them. It's like somebody took a puppy and then threw a, like a quilt over the top of it and you're just watching it try to get out and it's just moving to one end and back to the other and it can't escape and you're just like, oh, my heart is broken for this, this sad little animal that just can't escape from that little blanket and you're just so just sad for them. But then if you look at this, that's not what you should see. That's not the picture Paul is painting. Verse 8 says, Just like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Just like them, in the same manner as them. They have made it their ambition to destroy the people of God. They've made it their ambition to put truth in the crosshairs and pull the trigger. This indicates that most false teachers actually know that they are peddling lies. They actually know that they are teaching falsehood yet they continue with all deliberate speed doing exactly what they are doing observation 14 false teachers will imitate christian practices paul compares false teachers with johnny's and jambres the magicians of pharaoh's court these men were able to do miraculous things like it said earlier in the reading by their dark arts they had been granted demonic power somehow to copy some of what aaron and moses were doing with these miraculous events although what they were doing was in a much less incredible way false teachers 
will use Christian language. They will use Bible verses on occasion. They will build church buildings and make them usually quite large and fancy. They will sing Christian songs. I think that when uh, when Paul wrote this letter, actually, these people were probably also imitating miraculous activity that was happening among the apostles. Remember Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and then included in that are some pretty miraculous things. Some people who God will turn away at the gate of heaven have actually done miraculous things. So here we see that these people are going to imitate Christian practices. Timothy was in this church knowing these people, they look like they're doing Christian things. And Paul is saying, don't be fooled. Do not have anything to do with them. Avoid them. Those things are just mere facsimiles of Christian activity. They are not actually worship. Observation 15. False teachers cannot imitate everything. Jonathan Jambres were able to copy three miraculous events. We saw earlier in the reading that they, you know, Aaron's staff turned into a snake and began eating all the other, oh, well, and then the, the Jonathan Jambres turned theirs into snakes, and then Moses' staff or Aaron's staff ate theirs. And just incredible. I can't imagine what that actually looks like. But basically, even in their miraculous activity, you see that God's power superseded theirs. Then in the the next event, they turned the Nile River to to blood. Then these people were able to some level, on a minute scale, imitate that before the Pharaoh. And then it says that they were even able to produce frogs. How would they do that? I have no clue. They were able by their evil skills to do these things and to imitate the work that was happening through Moses. However, they were never able to undo what God had done, and nor were they able to imitate or replicate any of the other plagues. Paul says that these kinds of false teachers will be corrupted in their mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Allow me to give an example here. In 1992, Harold Camping published a book called 1994, question mark. And you've probably heard of that. He argued that that was when Jesus was going to come back. And he made this big formula. I can't, I, I've read part of his formula. It literally is nonsense. There is no way any rational person should look at that and think, you know what, that just makes sense. Yet lots of people bought into this idea that in 1994, Jesus would return because of this formula. However, when his calculations proved to be inaccurate, what happened? He said, you know what, it's actually going to be in May 21st of 2011. And then when that didn't take place, he moved it again to October 21st of 2011. This man led many people out of their churches and even convinced some to spend all of their life savings and take out credit cards, racking out hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in order to promote his books and teachings and radio show and other things. And mixed in with his teaching was all sorts of heresy, not the least of which the denial that God actually paid for sins on the cross. But it became evident when all of his predictions continued to fail. Clearly, this is evident to all this man is wrong. And if he was still alive, I assume that he would just write another book and bump the date back even further. Which brings us to observation 16. Folly will be plain, but it won't be plain to everyone. Or it will be plain to everyone, but not everyone will abandon them, rather. Jonas and Jambres were clearly not capable of doing what God was doing through Moses. However, that did not cause Pharaoh to listen to Moses. Obviously, these people were counterfeit. They could not accomplish the same miraculous deeds, but they were no longer listening to Moses. 
Um, my wife spoke to one of our neighbors recently, a young man, and he decided that he was going to join the Church of Scientology. And my wife was trying to lovingly convince him not to do that. And he said, you know, I know it's a cult, but I want to be part of something. As a side note, this young man is not interested at this time, at least, in attending our church. But that man in the video I showed earlier, he's continued his quote-unquote ministry till this day. Why are people listening to him? Why are people going to Scientology, even if they know that it's wrong? Because they want something from it. So even though it might be evident to people that this is false... It doesn't make these people, these false teachers, less dangerous or less influential because some people will still seek them out or listen to them because they prefer that over the truth of the gospel. Which brings us now to our final point. The gospel is of first importance. This is where we begin and this is where we'll end. We've covered a lot of details, but let's bring it right around to where we started. One of the interesting things about this list that we studied today is this. This list describes every single one of us in this room before we were saved. Allow me to read to you from another list that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then verse 11 says, and such were some of you. That describes you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Do you see that the list we talked about today, these 19 attributes, describe all of us, making each one of us disqualified for heaven? It could be easy for us to walk away from a list like this one and have a very legalistic mentality. But God is not merely seeking for outward conformity. Young folks here again, I want to just say to you, God wants more than just your obedience to your parents. Yes, obey your parents. I want my kids to obey me, but more than that, I want them to know Jesus. There is something that goes deeper than just outward conformity to the law. We who are in Christ have been saved by grace. That means that we were saved even though this list describes who we were before we were redeemed. And I hope that you will join us this Wednesday night. We're going to come here. We're going to listen to six testimonies of people who were dead and then God brought them to life. People who were on this list and then God brought them freedom. We're going to hear about the kindness and loving a loving heart of God as he was willing to forgive their sin. And we're going to hear about his mercy as it applied to rebellious hearts of sinners who were running in rebellion. But God being rich in mercy brought salvation to them. And if you are in Christ, he's brought salvation to you. Not because you deserved it, not because you were just able to conquer all these things that are on this list. For you can't conquer any one of them without Christ in your heart. So let's close by being thankful for God who has drawn us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light and let us dedicate ourselves to watching over ourselves and to one another as we strive towards the cross together. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love. And God, I thank you for the gospel that you sent your son to die for sinners like the people that are listed here. That we who were on that list, who exemplified those traits, could be saved. God, I thank you that even though we have not deserved your love, you have given it freely. 
God, I pray for each and every one of us that we would be better at guarding ourselves against sin and better at guarding our church against sin and better at watching carefully for false teachers and false doctrine. And God, I pray that the man that we saw earlier on that video would repent and that you would bring him to salvation. God, I pray that those who are currently listening to false teachers, whether they're in this room or abroad, God, I pray that you would bring them wisdom and clarity, that they might see the truth rather than what is being peddled by these men and women. And God, I pray that for those of us in this room, that you would cause us to know Christ in a deeper way because of what we've learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.